0: Hi, and welcome to Where the White Coats Come Off. We are Katie and Beth, PAs and doctors of medical science, and we are here to help you get into PA school and then get through PA school. We want to be the two people here for you every day and through every step of the way, your mentors that guide you through this process so that you can finally start living your dream career. We are so excited to meet you and connect with you and help you to finally get into PA school and then get through PA school. Before we get started with today's, we just want to drop in and encourage you and lift you up. We know how overwhelming this process can be and just keep going. Every single day, take one step closer to perfecting your application, to strengthening your application so that you can get into PA school. Do you feel overwhelmed or stressed or not sure how to even begin? We totally understand, we get it. We've been there and we've seen so many candidates either delay applying to PA school or run out of time and rush through their application, or worse yet, make big mistakes on their CASPA application that cost them an interview. Through our years of teaching at PA programs, we have seen applicants make the same huge mistakes over and over again, and we don't want that to be you. If you dream of becoming a PA, we want to help you achieve that dream. We want to be the two people that are there for you. We want to be your mentors and without wasting your time, money, or emotional health, you can absolutely become a PA and there's no such thing as a perfect application. It's all about making sure you don't make the mistakes we've seen and making sure you do the things that make you stand out from the crowds. We will teach you exactly how to do this in our application to acceptance course. Check it out in the show notes or go to go.prepaclinic.com course again in the show notes or go slash course. And now on to
1: today's episode. So welcome to where the white coats come off. Today on our podcast, we have a PAC and fellow PA educator named Christopher Madey. Not only is he working hard to help educate the next generation of PAs, but he also has a podcast as well. So we'll get into all these details later, and as always, you can find all the links to everything we talk about in the show notes. So let's just welcome Christopher.
2: Well thank you for reaching out, and having me on the show. My name is uh, Christopher, as you said. I'm, uh program director at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center PA program in Memphis. I've been in PA education since 2011. I've been a program director since 2017. This background's pretty variable. I did three years of trauma burn um, intensive medicine. I've done seven years of part-time emergency medicine, urgent care work. Right now I'm doing primary care, internal medicine at our student health employee health clinic here on campus as my practice release time and i've been in podcasting since 2015 with my personal podcast pain podcast which is pa and uh, pa in education podcast where i cover a lot of board review clinical topics just deep dives into things that are on the pants blueprint and then i've also got a smattering of other podcasts i do one with some fellow educators called airwaves and educators i do uh, hippo education products another one of the uh, hosts adrian banning where we are partnered with AAPA, we just kind of do some PA spins on some of the hippo ed primary care wrap um, topics. So, been in podcasting for a while now. I like this medium. Um, I think it's it's a it's a great way to be able to get information and listen to things when you're on the road in the car, walking the dog, all of that stuff. So I'm, I'm excited to excited to have this conversation.
1: Yeah, wow, it sounds like you have your fingers in a lot of pies, (laughs) and it sounds like you have an amazing uh, background experience. So as you said, you've been a PA for a long time. So what drove that kind of change to move to, you know, becoming a program director and kind of moving in the education realm?
2: So my first job out of PA school was in the uh, Trauma Burn Intensive Care Unit at my my institution's uh, university hospital in Birmingham. And I had a, I had a PA student on my service the first month that I was out in clinical practice so I graduated in December. I started my job in January and in mid-January, I had a PA student on my service Whoa. Um, and I was a preceptor. <laughs> Education is just something that I've always enjoyed. I like teaching people um, just things that I have learned over the years, even, you know, as simple as just. Having a PA student, on the uh, you know, a month after I graduated, it was not like I had a a, a wealth of knowledge of trauma, but I just talked them through the clinical year and things that I learned while I was on my trauma rotations and told them things that they could try to get experience in and who to rotate with and who to stay on call with. And, you know, that blossomed over the three years that I was in that role into being the sort of formal education person for the. PA students and the medical students, I had created a, like a 500 some odd page spiral PowerPoint printout notebook that covered pretty much every single thing in trauma that they'd come across. I think it had like 22 or 23 chapters. In wow. It. Um, and, and so, you know, they would come on service that month. I would, you know, print it out. I, would, I had a spiral thing in my house, so I would just print it all out, spiral it for and hand it to them. And then over the course of the month, we would kind of go through that whole thing. And word had gotten back to my alma mater that I was doing this and they said are you interested in coming over and doing some you know lectures on some things and I said absolutely I'd be happy to so I came over and did some lab medicine talks just because I, I like uh, electrolytes and acid-base balance and you know those kind of things and so I started doing that and then you know six or seven months after I was doing those guest lectures uh, faculty line opened up and they told me that you know they opened it specifically for me and that I should apply and that's when I made the jump so I I became full-time faculty three years after I graduated PA school, and I kind of just haven't haven't looked back. Becoming a program director is something completely different. Um, I just got to the point where I realized that I've got a lot of ideas that I would like to impart into PA education and to sort of make, make a program my own, and the only way that I was experiencing uh, or having the, the opportunity to do that is to be at the helm, one of the main precipitating factors for me leaving my previous institution was you know i had all of these ideas that i wanted to try to incorporate in the curriculum and they just kind of fell on deaf ears and they just said no you know i just don't want to do that or we haven't done that the uab program that i went to was the second oldest pa program after duke been around since the late 60s. I want to say it was either 68 or 69 was when it was created. And so, you know, that philosophy is hard to change. And so I made the jump to be a program director at an upcoming PA program. Uh, They had only graduated two cohorts by the time that I showed up and slowly have just been incorporating the things that I want to see PA students learn and the ethos that I would like to impart in new students. And being a program director just allows me the flexibility to be able to do that. And, you know, luckily, I've got a good cadre of faculty around me that are also interested in that. And so, you know, we do get to get a little bit more flexible with some things and and change the curriculum as we see fit. What we want to try to have our students learn in the short time that they're with us. Just I I just really enjoy that aspect of education.
1: Yeah, uh, that was interesting when you said, you know, hey, you came from this institution that had a long history of, you know, this is the way we've done it. And I've heard similar things from other professors in PA education that, you know, change is hard, and sometimes there are some resistance to change. So we do get a lot of students who want to apply to PA school who are applying to PA school. We get asked all the time about like new and developing programs. And one of the things we say is the good thing about like, you know, newer programs is that they are kind of with the new technology. Usually they have um, kind of bought all the new supplies and that there's no set precedent. And so I feel like newer programs are more likely to sort of change with the times and maybe kind of keep up um, because there is no set precedent. So I guess you've seen this in your jump from a kind of established institution to a newer institution?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things behind the veil of education is, you know, revolves around accreditation and and things that you have to do to keep the program in compliance with the accreditation standards. And part of that is you can't just make changes for the sake of making changes. I might really think that we need to do, you know, change this thing. Uh, but in the accreditation eyes you have to have the data behind it to support that change and so you have to have a reason to enact something like that you can't just on a whim say man i'm just going to do this and so that's why i think in established programs it's hard to do that because they've got a track record of this works we're in compliance we've done a good job with it we've got good outcomes and so the, the changing it for the sake of change is hard to do unless you can do something to collect some data to show, hey, we need to do this because of X, Y, and Z. Ultrasound curriculum is a classic example. You know, programs have not historically have done ultrasound or taught ultrasound in their programs for several different reasons. One, faculty, they tend to be a little bit older and maybe never got trained in it, Mm -hmm. so they're not as well versed. And two, there's a big upstart cost in getting all of the, you know, the equipment and, and the ultrasounds and all that stuff. Um, and two, and three, it's it's an up-and-coming thing that students need to have exposure to. And if you don't expose them to, do, to that in school, then by the time they get out into clinical practice and they go into a setting where they use ultrasound a lot, they're already behind the curve. And so the data, there may not be any data there to say, hey, we need to do ultrasound outside of just the fact that ultrasound is becoming much more prevalent at the bedside, and that is why we need to incorporate it into curriculum, and I think that's where you get a little bit of pushback with these established programs, but also why as applicants out there that are listening, you know, why you want to ask these questions when you get the interview is what kind of things that are you doing that are that are new and innovative, and are you doing ultrasound, are you doing full cadaver dissection labs, you know, what kind of things are you doing at this program that is going to prepare me well as a practice PA? that program down the street or across the state is not doing.
1: Yeah, you make a really good point there because you're right. Everything is data-driven when it comes to the RPA, so you can't just change things or or do things without um, data. And so I think sometimes the students don't understand the kind of behind the workings because I know when I was in PA school, I didn't. I just know that we accredited and and I'm not even sure I exactly knew what that meant. I just knew it was something that we had to have, you know, in order to graduate and sit for our boards. And so we do sometimes like to kind of dive behind these topics for our students because sometimes I don't think that they do understand that you're right. You can't just make changes, decide, hey, we're going to teach more of this and less of this. or we're going to teach it this way without having that uh, data behind it. And so that's often how we make our changes. And we do have to justify all of our changes. Um, we have to justify almost everything to the ArcPA. Um, so everything, even faculty changes when, you know, faculty leave and new faculty come on. We do have to send these reports and, and keep the RPA up to date. And I always tell our students like it, it's really for them so you know deal as faculty dealing with the arc pa can sometimes be hard because there are a lot of you know i's to dot and t's to cross but when it comes to accreditation you know they just students need to know that they're getting a good education they need to know that they're getting the education they were promised and they're paid for uh, and so this is kind of how we talk to our listeners about accreditation like hey you know. It's our our job to like deal with it and send in all the reports and do all the data analysis and everything. But for you, you know, it's really to cover you to make sure that you're getting the education you need to become uh, an amazing practitioner.
2: Exactly, yeah. The students students don't need to know the inner workings of the accreditation process, but they do need to understand that there are certain things that we have to cover, and mm-hmm. it might not make sense at the time that we're doing it. And so, the, the, you know, one of the things that my students get tired of me saying is just trust the process there's things that we have to do and have to cover within the curriculum over the time that you're in this program and it may might not make sense to you right now because you're at the ground level on the ground floor but for me at the 30,000 foot view I can see why we're doing all of this and so sometimes just explaining that to students actually helps them understand why we're teaching this course during this time or I don't understand why we billing and coding during the didactic year, because we're not even going to know anything about it until the clinical year, and then, you know, explaining the reasons behind it.
1: Yeah, and I think just being transparent, I think there's kind of a mystery, it seems like, around PA uh, education, the process to get into PA school, the CASPA, it just seems it's kind of uh, wieldy. Um, and so some students, they just kind of this mystery of why we do the things we do, and and really it is, there is a set precedent that there are certain things we have to teach. And to be honest, just, I've been in PA education since 2015, and since then, even since then, things have changed. Like, there's new ARC standards, a new Pants Blueprint has come out, um, simulation and task trainers and models have come so far, just in the six years that I've been in PA education, so it's really amazing to see how much has changed.
2: And not only just the change that's come with it, but also the application of it. So, you know, like, I'm I'm a big simulationist, I've been simulation trained, and Took a week-long Harvard course and the whole the whole nine. Uh, you know, I just I really believe in, in simulation. Yes, you can use it for you know summative type assessments with OSCEs and you know are you ready for uh, entry-level clinical practice and, and whatnot. But I mean, you can also use it for simple things. Just uh, from a communication standpoint, you can do a simulation on a difficult patient encounter, and you can have students go through and go through the steps of how do you de-escalate. Um, you know, when somebody is belligerent because of whatever reason. And so you can really get creative with some of those things to where it doesn't need to be a lecture students don't need to be sitting in class and listening to you. It can be a scenario where you put them through it and say, okay, well let's walk through. How would you, patient says this to you, how would you respond? You know, what's your body language saying, watching the students actually go through it. It allows them that opportunity to really see what they, do if they were in that clinical setting and it gives them just that one extra experiential touch point to then say okay this is what i did in simulation i know i'm not going to do this when i when i encounter it again and then four months into their clinical year they're in a similar situation and then they can draw those experiences so you know there there's ways that in education we can use those things in non-traditional ways to still get the same point across, but have it land on a much more receptive audience. Yeah,
1: um, we found out through simulation that, it, it's funny because you know, you're know you in this room with this mannequin and, and sometimes we do group simulations so you have your peers with you and the students really get into it. Like sometimes you know it'll be simulation of like giving bad news or something like that or dealing with belligerent patients and, and they really get into it, they'll kind of get like teared up almost and they'll get very sometimes even emotional about it. And it's, it's really, really interesting because we know it's fake and they know it's fake, but they can put themselves in that and be like, okay, what if this was a real patient? And so I'm always impressed with how they can do that. And we use simulation a lot too. So it's not really always about getting the right answer. We use it a lot to figure out like critical thinking. So like if you got the wrong diagnosis or you did an intervention that probably wasn't recommended, why? And so instead of, you know, badgering them like, hey, you did this wrong, you did this wrong. We wanna figure out where the thinking process went wrong. And then how we can change that thinking process in order to, you know, so go back to, okay, what was your differential? You know, why did you ask this? What did you do there? And so I find that simulation is really, really um, effective in figuring out, like, the thinking process about, like, how did this patient get the wrong medicine? Or how did we not arrive at the correct diagnosis And so, again, it's not really about getting the right answer, which is hard for the students to understand. But it's more about how your thought process needs to change in order to, you know, get there.
2: Yeah, it's it's a very meta application of education because you want to you want them to think about thinking and that is inherently difficult to teach I I teach them about probably about nine hours of critical thinking and assessment in our simulation course prior to us actually going in there where we talk about how do you develop a differential diagnosis what's your what's your uh, diagnostic schema what's your problem list what's your illness scripts and we go through all of that And when we start the simulation, I tell them that you may not get what the diagnosis is. Maybe if you go through all of the steps and you do everything that I've planned out in in these scenarios, you might get to the end diagnosis of this is what's wrong. But oftentimes I don't don't give them the diagnosis when they're done unless it comes up during the debrief. And so I Mm -hmm. tell them up front it's not about the end result. It's not about did you diagnose them right, did you treat them right. There's going to be multiple points during that entire encounter that we are going to be able to unpack. And we might spend 20 minutes of the debrief just talking about different diagnostic studies that you can order as you're working up somebody with heart failure. And we don't even get to the chronic management or anything else because for that particular class, for that cohort, that was where their deficiency lied. So we decided during that debrief that that's what we're going to spend our time on. Next year, it may be that we'll talk more about the, the chronic management and meds we give for it, because maybe they, you know, we do a better job of talking about those diagnostic studies. So each debrief is different each year, which keeps me on my toes, which is nice. <laughs> but it also it also allows us to tailor the educational process to the cohort. And we do all of our simulations are all group. But uh, we have a we have a phenomenal sim center here that was built in 2018. And so we're able to run a three-person sim on a mannequin and then live stream that into the classroom that's right down the hall in the Mm. sim center. And so the class is watching live time what the three students that are doing simulation are doing. And then we also have all of the uh, diagnostic studies and labs and everything also broadcasted into the classroom. So they're getting the same information at the same time that the group in the room is going so that by the end of the 20-week course... You might, you might have only physically participated in two sims, but you watched almost 40. And so it, that allows us then to answer questions or ask questions and debrief with the entire class without having to just debrief with those three students, which I find is much more beneficial as a whole. Plus, again, it gives us an opportunity to really unpack where they're at as learners and what are the things that they feel like they need. And then I can tailor my debrief to that.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it is really interesting how different classes kind of, we've always called it like, I don't know if attitude is the right word, but different classes are totally different. And it's funny because, you know, they're made up of, you know, cohort of students that are very diverse from different places, different backgrounds. But it is interesting how sometimes the, you know, the classes follow a certain pattern and whether it's that because they model after each other, or I'm not sure, but I've always found that really interesting um, that the kind of the class thinking almost kind of becomes, I guess, almost as a whole. Uh, so that's really interesting that you guys have seen that too
2: well it's, it's weird because you know unless you change your curriculum year to year each class goes through the exact same thing right. they're experiencing the same classes in the same order with typically the same instructors and so really there shouldn't be any difference in the deficiencies from year to year because they're getting the same education and so when you've got one class that comes in and says I, we really need help with." reading chest x-rays and say, okay, well, I mean, we did that, you know, six weeks ago, but sure, all right, we'll spend some more time reading chest x-rays this year. And then the next year, you do the exact same thing. You do the same chest x-ray lecture, but that class on that particular sim says, oh, well, can we, can we go over electrolytes a little bit more? And it's like, okay, I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, this is this is just where we're at. And I mean, that's, that's the part of being in education that I like. I like being able to go into the classroom. And I mean, I like, you know, lecture-based classroom teaching. I mean, that's my thats my jam, but I love going into those types of things. My, my primary teaching responsibility is the skills, procedures, diagnostic studies, and simulation. So a lot of what I do is based around active learning in labs and mm-hmm. you know, procedural type stuff. And so I like just walking in and just saying, okay, here's what we got. What do, what do we want to work on? And so every year is just a little bit different. It forces me to think about approaching the material different each year. And, you know, sometimes I build off of that. You know, if a class consistently says that they're struggling with this concept, I may then go back into the courses that I teach and make sure that I bulk that section up. But, yeah, the high mentality of where they feel like they're deficient in can change from year to year, but the simulation cases that I do are the same and how I approach them is the same, but just what we cover in the debrief may be completely different on opposite ends of the spectrum.
1: Yeah, I found the same thing, and it's really funny. And sometimes we'll even have like, oh, hey, I really love this lab activity one year. Everybody loves it. And so you do it again the next year, and they're like, eh, nah, we we weren't that excited about it. And so, you know, as an educator, it really keeps you on your toes and keeps you innovative and keeps you, you know, uh, using student feedback and changing. Uh, But it's just funny how it'll just, from, as you said, from year to year, it'll just vary so greatly. You know, every cohort is different. Every cohort just you know, has different needs, has different, as you said, deficiencies, has different things that they're good at or things that they are excited about. And so it does really keep you on your toes as an educator.
2: Oh, yeah. It's fun.
1: (laughs) It truly is. It truly is. So we get asked all the time, like, you know, why PA education? And I think it's one of those things that if you're just drawn towards education, you're the type of person who likes to teach, that you invariably just somehow in life, when you put that energy out there, you end up, you know, where you're supposed to be uh, in PA education. And I think PA education also self-selects people out. So we've, we've had, you know, some professors come that think maybe PA education is for them. And then, you know, after a few months or a year, they're like, oh, I just don't really think so. I think, you know, clinical medicine is more my passion. And so it kind of self-selects people out who want to stay because, you know, there are different stresses and there's different concerns than you would see in, you know, clinical practice. But the number one thing that we get feedback from, from instructors that don't, That don't stay or that feel uncomfortable is that hey I was taught to be a PA you know I was never taught to teach and so I think that was kind of an interesting interesting fact and so you said that you know from the very beginning you are preceptor you know less than a month after graduation so you were already teaching Um, but how hard was it to to move from full-time clinical medicine to kind of I know you kind of did some adjuncting first but to to kind of leap in how hard was that for
2: you? I am a big proponent of teachers are born and not made. I mean, there, there are certainly exceptions to the rule. I mean, somebody who really wants to be an educator can work really, really hard at it, may not be innately their strength, but I think the good teachers that you see have always done it and have always in some form or fashion been an educator. And so for me, you know, when I was, I, was a, I, I worked for three years as an orthopedic technician prior to PA school to get my, my hours, and my last year that I was in this clinic in this orthopedic, busy orthopedic practice at Georgetown University Hospital in their department of orthopedics there I was the lead orthotech and so I was responsible for training all of mm. the new medical assistants that came in that were training to be cast technicians you know techs in the in the in the orthopedic department and I enjoyed that I enjoyed going through and showing them how to do all the different casts and you know what we were our roles and responsibilities were in that clinic and and then, you know, got into PA school and just enjoyed doing, you know, group sessions and leading things that were in my in my wheelhouse. I was a kinesiology major in undergrad. I was a personal trainer. I'm a meathead by all intents and purposes. So, well, you know, orthopedics and musculoskeletal was the area that I excelled in. And so myself and another one of my classmates, I was an athletic trainer, kind of led those study sessions and, and I just enjoyed that. And so I think if you feel like education is something that you want to get into, I always counsel people that I meet that are like, oh, you know, I'm a, I've been a PA for seven years. I think I might want to get into education. Then, you know, I say, well, have you precepted students? Have you given any guest lectures at your local PA program? Have you submitted anything to your state organization's CME conferences? Have you presented at AAPA? And I start going through all of this stuff, and their eyes just get real big. And I <laughs> say, listen, do that first and see if you enjoy that. Because if yeah. you don't or that seems like it's a lot of work to get good at that is all we do as educators and so if you're not sure that that's something that you want to do it's better to find out early than once you sign on the dotted line and you got out of clinical practice and then you're in education for a year and say this is miserable i hate it i want to go back to clinical practice when you could have experienced that very easily by just giving a few lectures and seeing what your stage presence is like and do you get insanely nervous and tachycardic and palm sweating by giving a talk or are you one of these that I call the circus duck which is just pacing back and forth on the stage talking to people just kind of having a conversation and it's it really doesn't feel like it's any more stress than you know just your day to day activities so um, and so for me long story it, it really wasn't that big of a channel because I knew that it was something I wanted to do I enjoyed, mm-hmm. I enjoyed looking forward to every single lecture that I had ever given. And to do that every single day was something that I was just inherently excited to do. And so that jump was not that difficult at all. Yeah,
1: it is really interesting um, because, you know, my kind of backup plan that if PA school didn't work for me that year is I had uh, already planned on getting a master's in education, you know, while working kind of at nighttime, the nighttime school thing, um, in order to you know, have some master's level classes, et cetera, if I didn't get accepted into PA school. So I think back then, you know, I knew too kind of that I love teaching, that teaching was my thing. So it is interesting how we eventually gravitate <laughs> towards, uh, you know, PA programs and eventually get back um, to that, that type of passion because I think some people's passion is just clinical medicine and that they know and that they're going to stay there. And the vast majority of PAs do stay there, but it is, it is interesting how we eventually all find our way to a PA program and that way we can kind of combine our passion of medicine and teaching.
0: Thank you so much for listening to part one with Christopher. We look forward to bringing you part two next Monday. We'll catch you next time.